Focusing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. A cop for over 45 years, Bill Brooks is the chief of the Norwood, Massachusetts Police Department. He's also an award-winning expert on eyewitness identification and has worked closely with the Innocence Project. We discuss the police pullback, generational change in policing, and the latest approaches to eyewitness identification. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe. The new up-tempo theme is here to stay. I asked on Twitter, and generally you were supportive. But the most support was from my girlfriend, and I know where my bread's buttered. So if you don't like the change, blame Shelley. My guest this month is William G. Brooks III, or Bill. I first met Bill Brooks when he was the chair of the Data and Reporting Working Group of the 2020 Presidential Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice, to which I gave some testimony. Bill is the Chief of Police for Norwood, Massachusetts, a town of about 30,000 people a few miles from Boston, where he leads a team of about 60 police officers. As you'll hear, he's been a cop for over 45 years. Chief Brooks is a graduate of the FBI National Academy and sits on the board of the directors of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Bill's an expert in the area of eyewitness identification. He is a member of the Supreme Judicial Court's Study Committee on Eyewitness Identification and also served on a related committee at the National Academy of Sciences. He presents nationally on behalf of the Innocence Project, and was the 2012 recipient of the Innocent Network's Champion of Justice Award. In 2015, he received the Civil Rights Award for Individual Achievement from IECP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police. In May this year, Bill was in Washington, D.C. for Police Appreciation Week, so he had a chance to grab breakfast on the Old Town Alexandria waterfront. In the background, you'll hear some people and birds. A lot of birds. So please come and join us for coffee, eggs Benedict, and some nouveau cuisine attempt at French toast. There is a brunch menu here. Oh, and I found the wine menu. Ah, I don't know, 10.30 in the morning, that's probably a little enthusiastic. Is that a drink for you, just a water coming? Just have a coffee, please. Coffee. Yeah, the same as well, please. Cheers, thank you. How long have you been on the Board of Directors? International Association of Chiefs of Police. Yeah. I've been on the board eight years. I think they've forgotten to let me go. <laughs> What made you decide to get involved with that kind of thing? Back in the day, I was the deputy chief in Wellesley, and um, my chief was uh, Terry Cunningham. And he was the incoming president, and he said, hey, would you ever be interested in the board of directors? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. It's great. You know, yesterday we had a conversation about gun crime and inner-city violence and that sort of thing. And there, Is that a problem? And, <laughs> yes, it's a, Well, I love the fact that everybody keeps talking about the pandemic and gun crime, and, you know, there's a pandemic everywhere. Yeah, I can't see the link. I see that people who might have availed themselves of services didn't have the opportunity to get to them, and there's some of that, but the pandemic was everywhere. There wasn't 30% increase in homicide, you know, in Sweden and France and other places. I, I should probably refine that. I, I can see at, at least some initial societal <coughs> upheaval early on, but a lot of that is now dissipated. Mm -hmm. And as you say, all these other countries have not had massive increases in crime. The difference is we have guns. We have guns everywhere. A lot of guns. A lot of guns. I also think maybe a sharper effect of the police being back on their heels than the criminals being emboldened. And I, and I think a lot of that happened. 
I know the George Floyd influence was everywhere in the world, but I think more so here. Yeah. And I think that criminals have been emboldened, and that I think that, that allowed shooters who might have um, hesitated to not hesitate. Then there's, of course, the meteoric rise in, um, in gun sales. That's what we were talking about yesterday. I'm a co-chair of the Firearms Committee. Now, the, the highest weeks of gun sales, n- nine of the ten highest weeks were in 20 and 21, which I think then gives opportunity for theft and gives opportunity for straw purchases and gives opportunity for that kind of stuff. So We're here at, in D.C. during Police Appreciation Week, so you've had a chance to be speaking to a lot of people at the IACP. If you just listen to sociologists on Twitter, they poo-poo the idea that police have pulled back. But how are people here feeling about that? Because you just mentioned the police pull back. I mean, it seems fairly obvious to me. I don't guess not pull back intentionally, but when I say about like back on the heels, then maybe a little bit more hesitant to, gee, that guy, I wonder if he's, I'm not going to talk to him. Yep. Like, I'm not going to roll up on that guy. It's not that they're not doing radio calls or not that they're even not stopping people who they think were just involved in a crime. But there's all of that activity out on the street where a cop might have rolled up and said, hey, like, what's up, guys? It's all that discretionary proactive activity, and it just it seems to have disappeared. And it's not even so much on the police, I think, because I actually do think that the pullback has been slight. But the perception of criminals, I think, is that it's there. I can tuck a gun in my waistband, and the guys on the gang unit are not going to roll up on me. And as a result, they're carrying guns. There's guns on the street, and if there's guns on the street, then they're more likely to become involved in something retaliatory or, or, or swing back on somebody who they think is a threat. And, uh, and I think that there's some of that. So, In Philadelphia, I know that stops have dropped to a fraction of what they used to be, but the actual number of guns that are being seized has increased which either means that cops out there on the streets who are doing stops have suddenly become geniuses at spotting guns in every single stop, or it's much more likely indicative that the volume of gun carrying on the street has just skyrocketed. That's right. I also think, you know, they, they asked a question about, you know, do lawful gun sales drive crime? The interesting measure, the ATF has a time to crime measure they look at, which is when they, when they do an e-trace on a gun and they follow it back to when an FFL sold that gun, as gun sales have gone up, the time to crime has decreased. So the, the amount of time it takes for that gun to show up somewhere in the waistband of a, of a shooter or at a crime scene or something like that has, has decreased. Guns are being left in cars. I think in Houston last year, 4,000 guns stolen from cars just in Houston, which is amazing, right? So a lot of, a lot of guns out there. It? A lot of guns on the street. A lot of people carrying guns who might not have carried them before and a lot of people out there who perceive a threat. So this stuff isn't simple, I think, obviously, but people out there who perceive a threat, who think maybe I'm more likely to get shot, are going to carry a gun for self-defense, defending themselves. Right now, because they got the gun on them, they're more likely to use it. So there's that rolled in. Yeah, that's right. Rolling the clock back, trying to get back to where we were two, three, four, five years ago, is going to be a real struggle because it doesn't seem like the political will's there. I, I think it takes a longer time to bring crime down than it takes to drive it up. Yeah. So you're not going to be unemployed anytime soon then? Uh, I don't think so. No, I, there's always stuff for uh, cops to do. You know, it's funny, I've been on the job 45 years and people have said to me, it's not a good time to be a cop. And I've always said, there's never been a really good time to be a cop. Right? <laughs> right. The, the 60s were a disaster, the 70s were awful, high crime in the 80s, crime in the 90s, right? crack, cocaine, all that stuff. And then there was terrorism, you know, and then there was, there's never been a really good there's time to be a There's always been some drama. 45 years then, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I'm starting to get the hang of it. Yeah. So uh, what, what was August Volmer like? Did you meet him in person? <laughs> <laughs> Very good, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. These last two years have certainly had a massive change. 
I mean, I've been around policing 37, 38 years now. I, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, this is, uh, when I say there's never been a good time to be a cop, this has been a particularly troubling time. And people that kind of look at you that you thought maybe at a, at a glance you got, would have gotten the impression that they trusted you or liked you or tolerated you or whatever, and then you can almost see in their eyes there was a period of time there that, that they didn't. Yeah. I must say that in the community where I work, there's just been tremendous support, you know, and, and all along. Almost as, as bad as it got on the streets in the cities with the protests, the stronger the support came in the community I'm from. And I think there's probably a lot of communities that were like that. It was almost back to the post-9-11 period where you would be, you'd be standing in line at the coffee shop and, and you'd get up there and they'd say, that guy who walked out just paid for your coffee. And, and that was going on around the time the George Floyd protests were going on. And I think it was just people just trying to show their support for us. So I've been very fortunate in my community. Yeah, how long have you been in Norwood now? So I bounced around. I was a detective sergeant there when I left Norwood to go to Wellesley, uh, the site of the, uh, the middle five miles of the Boston Marathon. And then I came back 10 years ago as chief. So you've really bounced around essentially the sort of Boston suburbs. I've worked for uh, three departments all in the same county. What sort of size departments are we talking about? Uh, Westwood's 30, Wellesley's 45, and uh, Norwood's uh, coming up on 65 so many people from other countries just can't conceptualize what it's like to be in a police department with under, under 100 officers. I know, and I, and I understand that, but if we were a, a huge department, we'd be a, I'd probably be working in a precinct with 60 officers. And there are places where the precinct captain is almost like a chief of police, and you hear that referred to. Yeah. So right. I think probably the policing is the same. The with principles the are the same, but the scale yeah. is different. That's right. Principles yeah. are the same. I, I would like a system like the UK with this 40 some odd police departments. There's the Home Secretary and people are kind of on the same page. And in the U.S. there's 18,000 police departments and, and it's difficult to get progressive change implemented. Do you think that's a cause of it? The scale of the number of departments and the sizes, the small size of so many departments, do you see that as a, a real barrier to progress? It's certainly an obstacle. Even if IECP comes out with a great idea or a, or a policy that would make great sense, how do you reach 18,000 police departments? And you can. You have model policies, but there's just no requirement on the departments to actually adopt them. That's right, because at the end of the day, every police chief kind of reports to his board of aldermen who, who don't know an awful lot about you know, no, model policy. And unless one of them read it somewhere and says, hey, chief, how come you haven't adopted such and such a policy? Then nobody in authority is making the police do that. I mean, Massachusetts is small. We've got... 351 cities and towns, and as uh, Chief Ed Flynn used to say, uh, every officer wears a patch on his sleeve, embroiders their day in the 1700s when they split away from the town next to them and became uh, the, their own community. By the sounds of your accent, you grew up in that area. Uh, yes, can you detect them from the Boston area? Just so? a little bit, yeah. I was going to put you down as South Philly, you know. <laughs> no. no, I lived my whole life there, yeah. 45 years in the job, the changes have been huge. The changes have been huge. Um, and it was very, you know, enforcement-oriented. A higher number of arrests usually indicated better work, and a higher number of tickets indicated better work. And I've said to officers, I remember sitting on my Harley uh, when I was a motorcycle cop and backed into a driveway during the rush hour, waiting for somebody in a perfectly functioning vehicle to drive by with an expired inspection sticker so I could pull out, and the guy just wanted to like the local police. But I would pull him over because he didn't have his car inspected when he was supposed to and write him a citation because writing the citation was deemed a, deemed a good thing. And I think I and other officers like me probably did some damage back in those days, whereas now we're more data-driven in the way we do traffic enforcement. We, I don't want inspection sticker tickets written unless it's for someone who 
is driving, you know, a poorly functioning vehicle. You know, I really want concentration on texting while driving and that sort of thing. Right. But you're a little bit more progressive and thoughtful and, you know, you've, you're having influence over policy at the national level. There are loads of police chiefs out there that are still driving that kind of stuff. That's what they still ask for. That's the metric. That's how the city makes a little bit of money. I get the feeling in some places that I've gone and visited a police department that's 20 years behind everybody else. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, talking about it, you know, Police Chief Magazine, we hope that people read the magazine when it comes out because there are really some good articles by some wicked smart people. I'm not saying you stereotype a Boston accent, but you actually just said wicked smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I might use it again, but it's, it's, oh, uh, people like you are wicked smart to people like me. But um, yeah, I, su I suppose that there are those ways. I go to roll call and I talk to the officers and with our command staff, I'm saying, look, I, I no longer care about that. I care about, you know, we've had pedestrian accidents um, along a particular street. That I want pedestrian enforcement done on the street where we've had pedestrian crash. Right, but what do you say to those young cops that are trying to come to notice? They're trying to get promoted. They're trying to stand out from the rest of the crowd. Does that satisfy them? If you're doing the job properly in the right way um, and you're being respectful and polite on all traffic stops, I'll eventually hear about it. If you're doing good police work, the good police work is this now. I'm trying to identify what makes a good cop these days. And I was on that hellhole of a site, Twitter. Oh, God. Which is where optimism goes to die. And <laughs> it's one of those few times when you go, this wasn't the worst day on Twitter. And there was a thread that you participated in. But you, you contributed a really interesting comment. And I don't know if it was something you've been thinking about for a while, if it was spur of the moment, but you tweeted something that I thought was really good in terms of what it is to be a cop's cop. Because the conversation was around what a police officer see in respect in other cops and uh, I took a note of it and you said I've been a cop coming up on 45 years cops cop has always been a compliment to be a cops cop means that you have all the attributes that people aspire to if they wish to be the very best in the policing profession it often means that you took the job for the right reasons if you led an unblemished career have a good reputation for justice and fairness know how to carry out all the duties required of you and most of all, people are confident that if they call you, you'll handle whatever situation is presented to you. You may have earned the title. And I thought that was fantastic. I was really encapsulate what it is. Did it just come to you in the spur of the moment on Twitter? Yeah, I, I don't think I had to assemble that in my mind. It's, I guess, what I've always thought. There are times when you'll hear chaos on the radio, and I'll kind of turn up my portable, and I'll call the desk, and I'll say, what's going on up there? They'll say, well, an oil tanker just drove over and we think it's stolen and they're chasing people through the yards. And my question is always, who we got up there? You know, and the right. dispatch will name the cop and I'll go, well, okay. Right, because you know it's, it's going to be handled. But it's a little bit like that Baltimore phrase that cropped up in the wire, natural police, or as they say, natural police. Right. Yes, that's right. But the tricky part is we're looking to think about recruitment and training and hiring and promotion. How do we identify those characteristics? I mean, you can't identify that in a promotion exam that's a pile of multiple choice questions. No, you can't. So we use a system of starts with a multiple choice exam. You still have faith in these multiple choice, here's a book, read it tests? Only just for the, uh, the far ends of the spectrum. Not the close calls in the middle that are five points apart, no. It's good but for it, an initial filter. It's kind of a management device and that will say, listen, give me everybody who scored 85 and above who's from our community and give me the veterans from our community, you know, and that's kind of our first pool. Thorough interviews and really thoroughly looking into the candidates. I'm, I'm not interested that you've had four security guard positions. I'm interested that you were a bagger at the local supermarket 
and the manager tells me if I attend more of him, right. I'd be happy. Somebody can talk to people. Somebody can talk to people, somebody who's respectful, somebody who comes in all the time, who's present all the time, who's reliable. I want somebody who's a good employee. You're really talking about people who've got good communication skills because I've been uh, spending a whole chunk of time with the transit police recently in Philadelphia working with cops who are engaging with people. We're seeing more and more of it across the country. I've got mental health issues, behavioral health issues, drug addictions, homelessness, all these kind of, the vulnerable community. And there is a push to have the social outreach role increase with social workers and decrease the policing footprint. And I'm looking at this going, I'm not entirely sure there's going to be a big difference in the outcomes of this because I see some cops doing really good jobs. Right. They just have spent a lot of time speaking to the most vulnerable people, and they do a pretty good job with it. Not all of them, but most of them do. I'm glad to hear you say that because you don't, you don't hear it that often. I think that, and a lot of people disagree with me here, but I think the, going back to the whole kind of defund concept of let's take money away from the police, we can probably spend it better somewhere else. We don't have to send the police on mental health jobs, we should send people who are trained to do that kind of work. I think some mental health experts would tell you that what they were trained to do is not to stand outside somebody's bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning. And When you think of it, a police officer's job is to respond to the scene where there may be a crisis, common enough where the person gets into, an, in our case in Massachusetts, gets into an ambulance and, and takes a ride to the hospital where they can get further attention. You still have the capacity to give people further attention in hospitals in Massachusetts? I'm, I'm, I'm coming to move. You know, the complaint that so many of the cops have is the same complaint that I think that the social workers are going to have, which is, you've put me in this role and you've given me none of the infrastructure and support necessary to do the job well. There just right. aren't, there aren't the hospital places, there aren't the beds and shelters, there just, there isn't the infrastructure there. You're absolutely, and that, and that part is very, very true, because we take the same people to the emergency department several times in the same month. Now, I'm not blaming the people at the emergency department, but I don't think that that's what they're built for either. No. Bread daughter, or are you still looking? You've already eaten, what? haven't you, this morning? I've eaten. I'm, I'm fine with the bread and butter. Go ahead and have breakfast. Can please. I do the eggs benedict, please? Yeah. Cheers, thank you. Okay, thank you very Lovely. Do you have, like, muffins, or? We have uh, French toast. You know you want to. Okay, I'll, I'll have French, French toast. toast. Good man, yeah. there you go. Which is nothing, it's nothing like a muffin, by the way, but... Uh, See, I knew you could be tempted. Well, now it's practically lunch. That's some marvelous justification. With that same justification, it's almost cocktail hour, right? It's <laughs> a good point. But the kinds of calls that people think about when they think about the police responding, I think cops do a much better job, yeah, than the public believes. More than once, I've had a doctor call me and say, I was trying to deal with my patient, but the officer was doing a better job, and I stepped back and let him finish it because he was connecting with her in a way that I was just struggling with. Isn't, you that, know? Great, isn't that great to hear? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, I think the general public would, would shake their head and go, no, really? Well, that's, that's unusual. But I can tell you it's happened more than once. Well, I mean, I love it here in America, and America's been very good to me, but one thing I have noticed about being in America is that we want everything and pay for nothing. Oh, yeah. And you get value for money from policing because if they're not dealing with a behavioral health or mental health, they're doing crime prevention, they're doing traffic accidents. If you just have a behavioral health specialist who's only on call for that certain number of safe mm -hmm. behavioral health calls, when they're not dealing with that, they're not doing anything else. Right. Because that's the one thing that they are there for, whereas cops, if they're not doing one thing, they're doing something else. That's right. You, with those every man or every woman, general purpose kind of people, are often what you end up having if people don't want to pay more taxes for more services. I think you're right. So you started 
your career you moved into being a defective? Yes. <laughs> that was back in the 80s, was it? Yeah, I, I loved that job. Different I, time, I, right? I was on that job for 14 years in the techno squad, yeah. I loved it. The second best job I ever had. Well, maybe the third best job. But I, I love doing that. What was the appeal? I mean, I'm just pleased to speak to somebody who's been really enjoying their police careers. I don't know, that, that side always interested me. Like, when I would finish a radio call and there was some sort of crime involved, I, I kind of wanted to circle back. I would want to call in on my day off to say, because is there any more information you need to kind of help? Or, you know, can I go knock on some doors and can I keep that case? And even in my department now, it's something, you know, we've encouraged is that we don't send everything to detectives. The more follow-ups that patrol officers do, then the more proactive work your detectives can do. I think there's another role that, that is often overlooked, and Anthony Bragger has written about this, which is that detectives often have a great deal of insight and understanding into how a case has formed and what systemic weaknesses in our system or what opportunities have been exploited by the offender. But if we only ever use that knowledge to achieve a prosecution, we don't shut those opportunities down. And there's a great prevention opportunity that's being missed by not engaging detectives and investigators more with the idea that they actually have a role in helping to drive crime prevention. Absolutely, and I, uh, I almost hate to say we almost never see housebreaks anymore. Now you've said it now, haven't I know, you? There I know, you go. I know. That's, well, that's I like starting the shift with a Q word. <laughs> I'm not even going to mention it in case somebody's playing this in a, in a cruiser and I say the Q word and it's like, oh no, no. When I say it to my command staff, they go, shh. You know? <laughs> but uh, it, you know, now people do identity theft and call elderly people and try to get them to buy gift cards and all that. Crime may be down, but there's no less evil in the world, right? No. Yeah, well, it's less of that up-close-and-personal crime. Right. But for people who don't have that skill set, there seems to be an increase in up-close-and-personal crime as well. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that looks fantastic. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. Eggs Benedict looks fantastic, but the idea of having a medley of vegetables with carrot next to it just feels wrong. No, no, and I've never seen French toast that looks like that, but that's okay. I'm sure it's going to be great. Value this being an audio podcast, not a visual one, because if a Frenchman saw that, he'd have a fit. <laughs> you have become a national, the international expert on eyewitness identification. Going back to your detective sergeant days, is that what sparked this interest? No, it had nothing to do with it. In the 1990s, Barry Sheck and, and Peter Neufeld from the Innocence Project start using DNA evidence to get people released who have been wrongfully convicted. That happens in the 1990s, and as that's going along, they begin looking at, well, how do those people get in prison in the first place? Right. And, and what they're finding is that, actually more often than not, the reason that they got there is because an eyewitness pointed out the suspect and that that eyewitness was wrong. And that leads the National Institute of Justice to put together a technical working group on eyewitness evidence. We start looking at what causes errors in these cases and what can be done, if anything, to avoid them. As a result, I get sent off to training. I was no longer a detective. I was a deputy chief in Wellesley. And I wasn't thrilled by what I read. It talked about the police detective shouldn't show his own photo array. And to me, that sounded like an allegation. But as I listened to the instructor and I listened to the material, I thought, yes, I can see how that would happen. I can see... When you're sitting there talking to an eyewitness and you really believe that you've got the right guy and the eyewitness seems to be going by them, how you might in some way show some sort of disappointment. Mm -hmm. I also remembered that witnesses had looked at me when I was showing photo arrays from time to time and I sensed that maybe they were looking for something. And then thirdly, if we just changed the way we managed this kind of evidence, it would kind of take away a defense. So anyway, I went back and I rewrote my department policy. Next I knew I was teaching it at a school for new detectives and speaking at a conference about it and the Innocence Project started calling me, asking me, well, could you go to this state and speak? And when you wrote that 
first change in the department policy. Did you get some pushback? I don't think I've ever worked with detectives who wanted just anyone. They wanted the right person. Sometimes what happens is you're convinced you've got the right person and the witness isn't seeing it. In many regards, it's being done with a noble intent. But it's still problematic. Those same detectives, though, if you ask them, and I have, how many of you take a deep breath before you show a photo array? Because they, they all know that this evidence is tough. Yep. That people just have a difficult time recognizing the faces of strangers. It, it's just a difficult human task. But this brings me kind of to the point where this sort of thing can't just be done with policy. It's got to be done with training. Right. You've got to get up in front of the class. When I teach, it's usually four or five hours long. And we talk all about wrongful convictions and how they occur. And the bad news and the good news. You know, what you can do to help your case along, to ensure that you've got the right guy. They did a survey of prosecutors, which I guess is the best way to measure this, asking them how many of their cases relied on an identification by an eyewitness as the, as the, um, as the primary piece of evidence. Primary piece of evidence. Yep. And the best they could come up with was about 3%. It doesn't come up in most cases. Most crime is unwitnessed property crime, and most violent crime occurs among people who know each other. So it's only those cases where you're really relying on an observation by a citizen of the face of a stranger. And essentially that's in their memory, that face is in their memory somewhere, you hope, you think. So it's something we don't do often. It's an unusual kind of evidence. And as a result, I think, prone to error if you don't have, number one, good policy guidance, but then also officers were properly trained. I was reading some stuff from overseas that said that this is one of the areas that the United States has really developed great policy and practice on. You know, the structures and the ideas that are IACP are leading, and, and you were on the National Academy of Sciences committee that also worked on this. Was that, in, was that interesting, by the way? I've done one thing with the National Academy of Sciences, and it's kind of fascinating. I, again, I'll use the term, I was surrounded, I was in a room of wicked smart people, and they were really great, and it was, a nice, it was a nice mix. As in so many efforts in this area, I found myself the only cop in the room. You, you know? bring the practical aspect to it. For my role in that is to kind of talk about, listen, when we have a case or when we have a witness, this is what we do and this is how, how we do it and this is why I hope I was able to bring some of that perspective to the project. How is it then that we've got, you know, at least policy identified, even if some police departments are not using it, yet so many police departments in a related area, which is investigative interviewing, still seem to be in the dark ages. I mean, I still keep hearing about people using the read technique when it's been known for a good couple of decades now that the peace model is, is a superior approach to doing investigative interviewing. Uh, yeah, I think that still has a long, long way to go. And I, I think it does take a while for that information to kind of circulate. You know, part of the resistance that's out there is recording interviews. And we were taught for years to get the admission and then go back and record the confession. Yeah. Not to record from Miranda forward. And there was a court case in Massachusetts in 2004 that the Supreme Judicial Court didn't say this is how you have to do it, but they said if you don't do it this way, there's going to be this stinging jury instruction that, that comes with it. So we've been recording interviews since 2004. So I've heard some reluctance, well, you know, the, they'll be able to see our techniques. I don't really think that that's valid. Almost analogous to video record every time you show a photo array. What I've said to detectives is video record all of your interviews. It will keep you off the stand and emotion to suppress. Yeah. And, and lots of times you want to take the stand because the judge says, has everybody seen the movie? You know, counselor, what's your point? And you go straight to points of law when everything is recorded. I've started to run into police departments that are giving body-worn cameras to their detectives when their detectives are going out doing this kind of work. And I thought that was a great idea. Mm. 
it reduces the chance you'll get jammed up and it's going to enhance the work. It is. It is. And so I'm not sure why there's that dichotomy between the two. When eyewitnesses get things wrong, is that their fault or is that our fault in the police? And I say our, even though I'm no longer in the police. But you, but you know what, you know what you I mean. kind of are, yeah. <laughs> uh, you kind of are. The answer is both, or it could be either. So if you look at the research, Gary Wells, who again was doing this stuff in the 70s when nobody would listen. Do people listen to academics nowadays at all, anyway? I do find, when, at least when I do a training, they listen to me talking about the academics. So if that's... There you go. Is that close enough? Yeah. You're the filter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you get us in front of the audience without us actually having to turn up with our tweed jackets and patches on the elbows and <laughs> unnecessarily long sentences. Yeah, yeah, this is what the researchers say. And then they, okay. <laughs> You're the translator. I think we need more guys like you to do that translation from academia into cop speak. Well, honestly, when you read a research paper, which I try to do... Good for you. Get, I've stopped trying to do that. Oh, my God. And you're just... I, I, what are the results? Let me flip to the end. And it's not that I'm just trying to get to the results, but, like, what was the research like? What were they trying to do? Yeah. And, like, what did they find out in the end? That's really what I, I want to know. I feel everybody's pain on that, because I can see my students going, OK, I made it through one page, the introduction. I made it through some of the literature, and they flip a page, and there's a pile of equations. Or it's like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's Brutal. That's, uh, Tough, tough stuff. So Gary Wells was, and he kind of coined these these terms, uh, estimated variables and system variables. And estimated variables are the things we have no control over. It's like, what was the lighting like? Um, was it a cross-racial identification? Was a weapon involved? If you've ever investigated a gun robbery, you have witnesses who give an awesome description of the gun. Absolutely. They can't tell you the race of the person holding it. So that's a very real effect called weapon focus. And understandably, if you think about it, I mean, it, yeah, you could be a, you know, five pounds of pressure per square inch away from your life ending right there. I'm going to focus on the gun. Yeah, it was black, and uh, I had a witness say I could see the points of the bullets, and it was shaking a little bit. Yeah. And they don't take their eye off it. No. So there's that. There's the estimated variables. And then there are the system variables, which are the things that the police do have control over. So it's a mix. The system variables are how was the witness instructed. And I think here it really gets into the training just beyond the policy. There are policies, and this was one of the recommendations by the National Academy of Sciences, was to instruct the witness and make sure you tell them that the person may or may not be in the photo array. But I tell detectives, look, it starts way back. When you talk to that witness in what is clearly going to be an eyewitness case, tell them, look, from time to time, we're going to need to show you photographs. And when we do that, we'll be having you come to the station. And then when you make that call and you think you've got the suspect, you don't say, oh, good, hey, we've got somebody. Can you right. come right down? Yeah. You really want to call them up and say, do you remember when we said you may be asked to look at photos? Well, we're going to start tonight. Right. What about after supper? Because the defense attorney has the capacity to ask the victim, how was all of this introduced? And if you're going, yeah, we got the guy. We got the guy. And they come down and identify him. That's and a problem. That's huge. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yep. And you can have a policy or a, or a bill or anything else that says you have to read such and such instructions, but it really comes down to the training. How do you interact with your witnesses at the first stage? Was there a moment when you started to more embrace the science around this, get more interested in the research? Well, I, I kind of got backed into it. Nobody goes into evidence-based policing voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what had happened is after I uh, broke my department policy and I got asked to do some training, well, then you have to know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've been to some police academies, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a criteria, but good for you for taking it on board, yeah. You have to kind of know what you're talking about, so I began to read up on it when I could. I had the uh, good fortune to meet Gary Wells and, and to meet some of the other researchers who have done research in this area, so I don't have to read 
all of the research papers, I, I get to like have lunch with them, right? And, right? and sit and talk to them, and what did you find out? And, and I found that very interesting. It is amazing when you actually face-to-face -face with somebody, they can actually help you with that translation. Absolutely. Because academic journal articles are incredibly difficult to figure out what was important. They're not, we tend not to be good writers in terms of identifying the key parts. Yeah. That's true. That's, a, that's if we even see them. Academic research papers are not showing up in, you know, a police magazine or, you know, no. how, how else would we see them? I wouldn't see them any other way. Too many academics, unfortunately, feel that once they've published the journal article, their job is done with that. I want to say, if you want somebody to pay attention to it, you've got to reach out to them, get on a podcast, tweet about it, do something to reach out to people who actually might want to use it. You know, the interviewing and instructing is part of it. I think um, if, if I'm talking to someone about whether or not their department is using eyewitness identification, kind of the reform-based procedures, is the one question would be, do they let you show your own photo array? Because that's the big one, blind administration. But most departments that are doing this sort of thing, it would be unheard of for a detective to show his own photo array. The detective puts it together, and instructs the witness, but then at my department, it'd call a radio car right off the street and say, here's the photo array, and this is Mr. So-and-so, and the detective instructs the witness and then says, I'll, I'll be right outside. So the, the officer showing the photos has no idea. They have no way that they can actually implicitly or subconsciously lead the witness. And the witness knows it. Right. So, so the witnesses are looking to them for a hint yeah. because they've been told Officer Riley here has no information about the case and doesn't know anything about the photographs. And so they're, they're not looking for that hint. And the officer doesn't know how to get I don't know. And uh, he says to the detective afterwards, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but she picked number five and she said she was sure. Right. And the detective said, well, no, that's not him. It's a filler. Or that is him and, and, and good job. Is there a recommended number of fillers if you actually have a suspect photograph? Is there a recommended number of fillers to use? The recommendation is, is six. Six fillers plus I'm the sorry, suspect? Six photographs, one being the suspect and five being fillers. Got it. And no doing three suspects, three fillers. If you have three suspects, let's say in a three-person offense, mm -hmm. you do three photo arrays, each being five fillers and one suspect. Got it. But in my department and in a lot of places where I've taught, I've said, build out the filler by two show a photo array of eight. At some point in time, there'll be a motion, or if you do something like me, where you showed a photo array and one of the fillers has braces, and they eject to that particular filler, say, that, that's okay, I've got others. Right, so that's a good by, idea. By adding two, it doesn't take away from anything, but it might get you through a motion. So. Right. Absolutely fascinating area, and it's that combination of police work, investigative work, but also science into human psychology. The good news about it all, so there's research that shows that when a witness makes an identification fast and you see it particularly if you videotape so if you bring person into an interview room like and we set them down and the detectives gives the instruction leaves the room and then the patrol officer starts showing the photos and we show them one at a time this is a sequential array they show a photograph then remove that photograph remove it out of sight okay so then you can't compare them all against each other so it's one at a time and then it's removed yep that's right and the science it goes both ways on that but I'm a, I'm a sequential guy because I remember the days of Polaroids, and I have to explain to some of the cops in the class what Polaroids are. I remember witnesses picking them up and handing me fillers as they narrowed the field. We don't want to know which one looks the most like the bad guy. We want to know if you recognize him. Yeah. And I know that sounds close, but they're different. But if you're using the right procedures and the witness gets to that one, it makes an identification within a few seconds. And then when asked, shows high confidence, there's research that shows there's a very good likelihood that that's the guy, right. provided that you've used the appropriate 
you know, if the person showing the photos knows which one is the suspect, all bets are off. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't count. And does the guidance suggest there are particular places that you should never put the suspect? Should they never be number one or never be number six? As long as he's not number one. You really do want the witness to reject the filler. Although they can be the last person when you show it sequentially, the witness should not know that. So in other words, and Jim Dysart came out, I think, with this term of uh, backloading, that you either hold the folder up so that they can't see when you're getting to the last photo, because you don't want a witness who believes, gee, they wouldn't have called me down here if he wasn't here. Right. This is the last photo. Oh, so I you rejected the others. It must be this guy. You don't even tell the witness how many photos they're going to see? Correct. They don't know. Fascinating. They don't know. Well, look, Bill, this is a really fascinating area, so I, I can see why you got into it, because the science behind it is really, really interesting. What's next for you? I'm flying home to Boston today. I'll be back at uh, Roll Call Monday morning. You know, my son just came on the job, so that's been an interesting twist to my career. Congratulations. He's working at my department, which meant that when he came up on the list, I had to recuse myself, call the State Ethics Commission, and write to my town manager, and remove myself, and the deputy chief ran the process. After graduation, he came to the department and we swore in the new officers and I pinned him with my shield from 40 years ago. Fantastic. He's finished field training and we shipped him off to midnight, which is what we do, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, 45 years, congratulations. And thanks for spending some time with me this morning Thank and you. putting up with this non-French French toast. <laughs> Very good, actually. That was episode 51 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Washington, D.C. in May 2022. A link to some of the reports we discussed can be found at reducingcrime.com podcast, where you can also find transcripts of this and every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Subscribe at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere so you don't miss an episode. Be safe and best of luck.